Welcome to everyone tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brian Shipley. I am the co-CEO and co-CIO at Arnrich Messina, a Portland-based investment advisory firm bringing our unique and disciplined process and philosophy to nonprofit endowments and foundations, high net worth individuals, families, and corporate clients. Today, I'm here with my colleague, research analyst, Ben Larson, for a look back at 2019 and where we were positioned heading into 2020. We're planning to take a pretty deep dive into some of the market highlights of the year and how the investment landscape looks as we launch into a brand new decade. Ben, thank you for joining us today. It's been an interesting year and I'm looking forward to a lively discussion. Thanks, Brian. I'm as well. 2019 was a pretty strange year. Uh, what do you think overall? Yeah, as we as we thought back on the year, we uh, and we were putting together kind of the market market commentary for uh, fourth quarter reports. We kind of looked at one stock in particular, which which if you re- rewound the clock about a year, um, and you were given kind of perfect information on everything that was going to play out in 2019 and what your expectations would have been for that stock, how would it have behaved? And and, and mm-hmm. so the stock that really kind of highlighted the market last year was uh, one that probably everybody knows extremely well, uh, Apple, which makes iPhones and iPads and computers and and all sorts of interesting things. Um, But if we'd rewound the clock to January 1st, 2019, and I was to tell you that um, Apple was actually going to have flat to negative earnings for the year, um, you know, pretty weak anemic growth, would you have guessed that that stock would have been up 86% for the year, contributing about 10% of the S&P 500? Yeah, return? N- no way. There's no way. Yeah. Um, but that was the reality of the situation. Um, but let's not forget that we were coming off of an extremely challenging fourth quarter, so it's always important to kind of know what the starting point was. If you, I'm, I'm going to be speaking a little bit out of turn, but I think if you rewound the clock, Apple's price-to-earnings ratio at the beginning of the year was – um, kind of low double digits, probably 13 to 14%, whereas today it carries a slightly above market premium. But, you know, there was a value opportunity there for people who were willing to look at that opportunity. But just an interesting um, note of what was happening in 2019. Other things I would point to with Apple specifically, it was a market really dominated by technology, mm-hmm. large cap stocks, um, companies who were uh, aggressively buying back their shares. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later on this podcast as well. Um, but like I said, starting point matters. So Ben, it's, I think it's always important to kind of rewind the clock and look at decades. We want to generally think really long term. And if we rewound the clock 10 years ago or even 20 years ago, just uh, maybe rem- remind the audience of kind of what those prior decades look like. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a really important time as we've kind of wrapped up the last decade to just really reflect over how great of a market the U.S. has been and how great returns have been. And so I think many people like myself, where I started my career in this decade, don't really have a point to reference in terms of the last recession. So all they've seen is just markets going straight up. And so that's really what the last market in the U.S. has been from 2010 to 2019, 13.6% annualized return, which is just insane relative to the last decade of 2000 to 2009. It was actually negative annualized return of negative 0.9%. So just a drastic difference between uh, those decades for the U.S. returns. And so if you take a look at emerging markets where we find some very value, uh, really attractive opportunities right now on a relative and an absolute basis. Um, The prior decade from 2000 to 2009, returns were annualized at 9.8% versus this decade was 3.7%. And then you take international equity uh, in the last decade, 2000 to 2009, 
2.7% annualized relative to this most recent decade of 5% annualized. So you can see there's some big discrepancies between those returns of, of, of really um, that, those long-term returns, which we, like Brian alluded to, tend to take a long-term approach. And so these are some of the uh, returns that really our clients are experiencing as we hold our positions for the long-term. Um, and I think that's a great leeway, really, Brian, into uh, providing on some of uh, the color onto our capital market assumptions and really our forward-looking returns as, you know, U.S. returns um, have been great this decade, but what we kind of expect over the next decade, as well as some of the other asset classes like emerging markets and, and international equities. Yeah, and, and, that, and that, you know, our capital market assumptions is something that we conduct every fall. Uh, the analytics team gets together and spends about a month or two really kind of evaluating not only what's happened historically, but what, what do we expect broad asset classes to provide investors on a go-forward basis. And ultimately, that's how we uh, go about building our client portfolios is with those building blocks. And as you mentioned, it's really important to understand kind of where you came from, because oftentimes, uh, markets can, um, to, to some extent, borrow from the future. So when you think about fixed income um, that have, has really had a, a fairly strong decade, but today at very low rates, I don't think investors can look at the last 10 years within fixed income and expect the same kind of results mm -hmm. over the next 10 years, just given where we are from an interest rate standpoint. So those are some of the inputs that go into um, how we go about, about developing our capital market assumptions. In fact, um, interest rates is something that really kind of guides every single asset class. It's kind of the first building block of the entire pool. Um, but on a, on a go-forward basis, and, and certainly this would be reflected in our client portfolios, we would expect U.S. markets, given the success that they've had and the valuations that they're trading at, to, not, to perform not quite as well as uh, overseas and certainly emerging markets like you talked about earlier. Um, those are markets that are still really growing, and we're going to be talking about um, some interesting opportunities and dynamics happening within emerging markets and even more specifically frontier markets a little bit later in this podcast. But um, I encourage everybody to check in with their advisors on um, capital markets. It's actually uh, going to be in your quarterly, uh, quarterly fourth quarter reports in the market commentary section so you can see that in much more detail. Um, the other thing that we uh, talked about in the market commentary was just how investment styles have become really, really blurred here recently. Um, again, I would point to a company like Apple where uh, it is, I believe, the largest holding in the Russell 1000 growth index with a high single-digit weighting within the index. But it is also one of the top holdings in the Standard & Poor's 500 value index. So again, that goes back to that dynamic where um, styles are somewhat blurred. In fact, some of the most extreme what are viewed as value sectors I'm um, thinking of like utilities and REITs and kind of steady, steady eddy, stable asset classes um, trade at pretty high valuations today. And, and, and frankly, there's companies within the growth sector that trade at pretty compelling valuations mm -hmm. from a valuation standpoint. So, um, you know, we caution investors to get too hung up on this idea of growth versus value. We think that the lines are really, really blurred. And, you know, frankly, most of the managers that we work with have some kind of valuation component to their research process. Um, in, in some of our large cap uh, active manager uh, portfolios, you could see names like Microsoft, which was up 50% last year. Again, another one of those leaders from a tech standpoint. But uh, Microsoft has really evolved over the years. At one point in time, it was kind of true value is that lost decade that you talked yeah. about where Microsoft really enjoyed that run up 
um, into kind of the, the tech bubble of the late 90s and um, frankly got hurt like a lot of its peers within that sector and it kind of set the stage for a very um, kind of dull from a return standpoint uh, decade for that company. But they evolved over time and now they're one of the leaders in cloud computing and, and have re- kind of reinvigorated their growth, growth trajectory. Um, other names I would point to, Apple at certain points of time, and, and even Google, you could you could find, or Alphabet, you could find in some value portfolios. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting as, you know, many might consider us to be maybe late cycle as, as we've had, we've been in the U.S. over the longest, uh, we've been in the longest bull market cycle in history. And so typical sectors that perform well late in cycle would be industrials, energy, and materials and and materials and uh, energy or materials and industrials have actually performed fairly well um, over the last year, call it. But energy's really been that sore thumb that hasn't been um, performing well at all. It's actually been one of the uh, negative returning um, uh, sectors uh, over the last year, year and a half, relative to the other sectors. Um, so I think that's really interesting, and there could be some structural headwinds to uh, call it oil and gas, where um, some might have that argument. But I think it's really interesting as you go into a bear market. Some of the sectors that typically perform pretty well are consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, and and energy being that fourth one. And three out of those four, call it consumer staples, healthcare, and utilities, look pretty expensive and uh, have just had a tremendous run as a lot of investors have really flooded out of those cyclical names into those kind of defensive names to um, take some of the risk off the table and really a lot of times irrespective of valuations. And so some of our managers that you would consider value, that we would consider value, are having a hard time uh, and really finding value elsewhere out of these typical value sectors because so many people have flooded into these sectors and really made uh, valuations just be um, our managers not comfortable with the valuations on the table for these specific sectors. Yeah, there was a point in time where I think uh, both the utilities and the real estate sectors were actually trading at higher PEs than the tech sector itself. <laughs> so a lot of that has been driven by kind of this, you can either view it as a flight to quality or just a flight to income, right? With mm. bond markets effectively having a very low coupon and certainly basically a no coupon when you consider inflation, um, that became kind of the next best step for kind of more income-oriented investors. They would go into those sectors that kick off really attractive dividends, but it got to the point where they were willing to pay for those those dividends and really kind of forgetting about the price that they were paying of the companies that, that um, you know, spin off of those dividends. And so um, some from a forward PE standpoint versus a 20-year average, uh, materials, uh, are about 31.5% overvalued from a PE standpoint relative to their 20-year history. Utilities at a 38% premium relative to their history. Real estate at an 18% premium. And then you look at the technology sector and it's only about 11% uh, relative to its history. And when you think from a from a growth perspective, I know which sector I would want to be leaning into. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that kind of goes back to this idea of these growth versus value you are seeing a lot of value managers with a pretty significant overweight to the technology sector to the detriment of exactly what you said earlier of those kind of old school traditional value sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we switch gears, Ben? You and I went on a trip uh, to Florida back in December, a couple different reasons. One, um, we were kind of testing 
uh, our investment approach and how we go about building portfolios from a um, kind of U.S. international perspective and, mm-hmm. and going into that trip with a with a bit of a mindset on should we be considering a more global approach? And while we're still doing work on that, the other kind of more primary component of that trip was really kind of reevaluating and reaffirming our competence in frontier markets mm-hmm. specifically. So if you could give some kind of highlights from that trip and what we learned uh, um, would be great. Yeah, so yeah, like Brian alluded to, um, we, we made the trip out there and um, had great conversations and really learned uh, exactly what's going on in the frontier market space and kind of the opportunity set out there um, and also the catalysts. And so I think that's really the most important is really those catalysts. As frontier markets have had uh, a little bit of a rough ride, call it, the last couple of years, and it's been really hard to... Uh, experience a lot of return there relative to the U.S. where a lot of uh, investors are just wanting to flood into the U.S. markets because it's been doing so great, alluding back to that decade um, decade returns of the last decade in the, the United States is over 13% annualized. And so why would you not be in the United States? You'd kind of look like a fool if you aren't in the United States relative to frontier markets. But we kind of, we, we wanted to reaffirm that conviction and really understand kind of some of those catalysts Uh, within the frontier market space. And so one, I think, relative to uh, developed markets, frontier markets are there trading at the cheapest valuations in history. And I think that's really important to highlight because um, as we look at a lot of different sectors in the S&P 500 or in in U.S. equities, a lot of them are looking pretty richly priced. So if we want to find some valuations that are looking attractive with some forward returns that um, could provide some premiums. Frontier markets is is definitely of interest. So a few other things that we wanted to highlight is really the catalyst for frontier markets that we've kind of deemed viable is, is the local local investors and the pension funds. And why is this important? Um, because a lot of the pension funds are allocated four to five percent to their equities and ninety five percent to fixed income because they're receiving fifteen to twenty percent yields. So why would you take the risk of equities when you can give your uh, buy government paper and yield fifteen to twenty percent? Um, so there's uh, there's that really that structural problem, and I wouldn't say actually structural problem, but more just that cr- uh, temporary issue where central banks have had rates trying to control inflation. So uh, a recent phenomenon uh, that we've been seeing is global central banks cutting rates, and so actually in developing. Uh, markets, 82% are in expansionary monetary policy. And so as they bring those rates down, pension funds and local investors are willing to take that equity risk because they're no longer getting that 15 to 20% yields on the government paper, but that's actually coming down to call it 5 to 10%. And so then they're willing to take um, some of that risk um, within that equity side of their their local uh, local equities. And so I think that's really important because This space, Brian, it it used to be roughly $45 billion in terms of frontier market um, investments, and now it's dwindled to eight to 10 billion. And so a little bit of capital goes a long way in in these markets. And so if we see some of those pension funds move, some of those local investors gain faith in their currency again, uh, this could be a really compelling opportunity over the next few years and really over the next 10 years as we look forward, uh, you know, long term relative to maybe a, a, a U.S. or, or, or um, inter- just developed international. I think frontier markets could be a really interesting space. Yeah, that was probably the most astonishing uh, piece of information I think that came out of that trip was one of the managers 
just that flight of capital out of frontier markets. And when you're starting with such a low base to begin with, you know, when you're talking a billion or even 10 billion in the U.S., that's nothing, right? That doesn't even mm-hmm. barely move the needle for some of the tech behemoths in the, in the U.S. But when you think about these markets that, um, you know, do have some illiquidity to them, and even the locals uh, aren't leaning into them like they have in the past. Just any directional movement to the positive uh, coming into these markets uh, will be really, really um, powerful. And, that, and that's frankly a story that we've heard from a number of different frontier markets that we frontier markets managers that we've met he, with here in the last few months. So um, certainly something to be on the lookout for. I, I, I don't think we anticipate any dramatic shift in flows from kind of developed market investors. Mm-hmm. Um, when developed market investors start seeing returns there, that's when you see kind of that ensuing capital rush. And, and that's definitely when you want to have some exposure to mm-hmm. that area. And uh, a few other things that we're, we're looking for uh, in terms of tailwinds or catalyst for frontier markets that would really aid some returns and, and start to see some capital uh, within frontier markets would be one, a weakening dollar. The dollar's been extremely strong uh, over the last call it, couple of years. And so if we see the dollar starting to, to weaken, um, frontier markets and, and international equities in general will will aid from that. And then also, uh, as, as we alluded to prior, U.S. markets, uh, investors have flooded into the markets and continue to flood into to U.S. equities. And so if we see a deteriorating uh, U.S. market or equities and uh, see a, a fall off there, we could see experience some returns in frontier markets. Yeah. And so last thing I wanted to touch on in terms of frontier markets is the index. And I think that's really important to highlight because in a market environment where much many of our indexes are uh, completely diversified, the S&P 500, the Russells, um, they're, they're fully diversified. Um, if we look at frontier markets, the MISCI um, Frontier Markets Index, 31% of the index is made up by two companies. So if you don't own those two companies, you can imagine that your returns are going to look significantly different than the benchmark. So I think it's really it's really interesting as we evaluate some of our managers and as we look at performance. Uh, a lot of times we look at relative performance because you have to. Um, our managers are basing their performance off off a benchmark, and it's not apples to apples because if they don't own those two names, they're not in 31% of the index, or they don't even have exposure to 31% of the index. So I think that's really an interesting point to touch on that the index is is very concentrated and it's not a full representation of of the um, asset class or of frontier markets and that's really what index uh, indexes are about they're supposed to make uh, a broad be a broad representation of um, the market and that would be the argument that most of our active managers in that space would make is a passive approach just doesn't even touch the true opportunity set in those markets but yeah you you mentioned two companies making up such a such a meaningful amount you know, just the banking industry alone, I believe, yeah. is over 50% of the yeah. index as well. Another thing to think about with frontier markets is you see some activity of countries actually graduating up into uh, emerging markets. So Argentina would be an example mm-hmm. of that, a, a country that actually, from a stock market performance standpoint, actually performed quite well early in the year. Mm-hmm. 
And the timing of it was just amazing where it, it effectively graduated up into the merging Marx asset class and then all of the political unrest started occurring within Argentina where the peso just fell dramatically and the stock market fell dramatically. So that didn't punish the frontier markets index because it had already moved out of it. It did marginally hurt the emerging markets index because it became such a, it was a small piece, but it was a piece of that index. But um, just another example of you know things to be aware of when you're investing in these markets, and not mm-hmm. to not to um, put too much weight in what's happening with the index returns, because frankly, we don't feel like that's actually very indicative of the marketplace, like mm-hmm. it would be in the U.S. with mm-hmm. an S and P 500. Mm-hmm. Um, impact is a is an area that continues to be immense focus for our firm, Ben, and you've done a lot of work in that space. If you, if you could provide the audience just a um, kind of an overview of what we've been up to and what's happening within Impact. Yeah. So yeah, you've probably heard uh, Impact, ESG, uh, that's been a really, uh, really a kind of a buzzword around the industry, the investment industry, where a lot of people have started to come out with their impact funds or their ESG funds. And so we kind of uh, think of our, ourselves as approaching it slightly different and taking a thematic approach. So that means we have four different themes uh, that we try to approach uh, making a world or making an impact or a difference in the world. And that being one being water, the second being food and agriculture, third being resource efficiency or renewable energy, and the last uh, piece being life sciences and healthcare. And uh, I think it's really, uh, it, it's really important to understand kind of what, what environment we are currently in. Um, and, and that being uh, one that we really need to uh, understand kind of the unintended qu- consequences of um, what, we're, what we're doing on this earth, really. And uh, so I think that's, that's one of the ways we approach in- impact investing. Um, and, and to throw, give you some stats as to why we have this urgency and why we are taking this initiative. As, as we've been doing this uh, long before my time, 10, 15 years we've been investing in impact. But um, over this, these last little bit, um, it's important to understand that um, you know, we are in the United States and in the world, highest CO2 levels in history. Uh, natural disasters, as, as um, you've seen on the media, are increasing rapidly. The annual, aver- aver- or the annual agriculture productivity growth in the United States is significantly less than 50 to 100 years ago. And we really just need to have urgency approaching these, uh, these topics. And so that's kind of why we've, we've put our heads together and we, fe- we feel like we've really started to make an impact in this space. Um, and so, and again, just touching on our differentiated approach on this, um, between the, the end of 2016 to November of 2019, a period of almost two years, sustainable assets under management increased by almost $1.3 trillion. So it came from $233 billion to $1.5 trillion. And you can imagine that's a huge amount of inflows, um, so they call inflows over the last two years. But as we dug further into this, we actually we actually found the statistic that 92% of that, um, that attributable to sustainable assets can be attributed to rebranding. Just renaming a fund. Renaming, which is just absurd because mm-hmm. it, it's just something that they just rebranded and they packaged and it's a shiny new thing called ESG. Um, and so I, I think that's really interesting to, to point that out as, as, you know, we're trying to take a different approach and actually go the step further of not just ESG rebranding, but how do we really make an impact um, and, and a difference in the way we invest while not being concessionary with returns? Right. Um, and so I, I think over the last year, uh, we've been able to um, look at our, our, our portfolio and we've been 
extremely pleased. And so uh, with, the, with the return, but also the volatility characteristics, the, the risk statistics of the portfolio, and, and our managers are just making an extraordinarily uh, amount of difference in this world and being able to report on that as well and showing how they're making a difference. And so I think those things uh, combined really uh, allow us to sit back and say, hey, this is something that is number one, really important in this world. And number two, I think we're approaching it the right way. And so uh, we've done a podcast, a three series part um, a while back. And if you're interested, you can visit our website and and listen to that. Um, And you can learn more about exactly how we approach each theme, the ways we think about that, and uh, how we constructed our portfolio there. Yeah. It's an interesting space. And I mean, I think we all recognize some of the challenges of kind of this ESG evolution. But the thing that I'm encouraged by is it it comes up in nearly every single conversation that we have with any investment manager. And and frankly, any prospect that we're talking to today, it's definitely kind of at the forefront of of investors' minds. One thing that I'm I'm kind of thrilled about is um, a lot of our kind of traditional long-only equity managers, which we've done a fantastic job of identifying great managers, um, actually score extremely well from an ESG standpoint as well. So Morningstar, um, a big provider of mutual fund data, um, actually has kind of sustainability grades or ESG grades on a lot of the mutual funds that they track. And it's just encouraging to see a lot of kind of our highest conviction managers actually scoring quite well uh, from an ESG standpoint as well. Um, Another thing that we're looking at, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this uh, during the podcast, but I think our research team will be spending some time on it here in 2020, is this idea of kind of the supply-demand imbalance within public markets. We've, we've talked a lot about um, kind of the shrinking of the, of the public equity universe, and Ben, you're going to remember this really well. 1996, <laughs> I believe the year you that were was, born. That was the year I was born. <laughs> The year, basically the year I started my career, so it shows a little bit of an age difference here. But um, in 1996, there was about 8,000 publicly traded companies in the United States. And that's thinking back to that really kind of tech euphoria where anything.com could quickly get listed on the stock exchange and, you know, investors would be salivating at getting uh, any piece of that IPO and driving stock prices higher. And that's what drove a lot of the the euphoria during that period and frankly a lot of the disaster that happened in the ensuing years for you know um, indexes like the nasdaq which closely follow the tech industry um today uh in 2019 you know that's been cut in half and we've talked a lot about that but the point the other point of this that i don't think we appreciate quite as much is not only how that number has been halved but just how aggressively a lot of companies have been buying back their own stock, um, and and it makes sense to to some extent. Where if you can borrow debt really cheaply or effectively for free for some of these large organizations, why wouldn't you take on debt and buy back your shares if you if you thought that they were undervalued? Yeah. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull Apple again out of the bag, but I don't think a lot of people recognize this, but. Uh, the number of outstanding shares that are publicly traded for Apple uh, has declined by about 30% over the last five years or so. So not only do we have the shrinking number of absolute companies, but the availability of their shares and the number that are floated out into the public market is shrinking as well. And yet we have this tide of um, you know 401k money entering the market every two weeks that frankly is just buying the market at any price. 
And so that's something that uh, we as, a, as an analytics group are going to be diving into a little bit more, and we just want to have a full appreciation of what's happening there and making sure that we're capturing that opportunity uh, really, really well. Um, any other comments on that? Stock buybacks, indexation. I, mean, I guess the other thing I would point to is, uh, along with the, the impact story, is uh, we've recently started working with a group where um, we're able to craft client portfolios specifically for what they're looking to do, whether it's ESG or uh, eliminating certain um, fossil exposure. Mm -hmm. um, the world of index indexation is changing and changing mm -hmm. quickly, whether it's ETFs, uh, direct uh, indexing, which is the group that I'm talking about that we're really excited to be working with going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, just a lot's changing in that space, and that will be an area that we're going to continue to look in, both pros and cons of indexation. Yeah. So I think there's there's things to be looking at on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, international markets has continued to be um, kind of an area of importance in our client portfolio construction. And again, I would point to our capital markets assumptions as some of the rationale for why uh, we believe it makes sense to have a meaningful weight in your portfolios to those markets. We do believe that they are going to outperform um, over the next 10 years. Um, emerging markets, uh, we have uh, modeled a return of about 9.4% for the next 10 years. Uh, developed markets at about 7.3, and then U.S. large cap at 5.7. So pretty meaningful premiums to international develop, but certainly emerging markets mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And then we expect uh, U.S. mid cap and U.S. small cap to have slight premiums relative mm -hmm. to the U.S. To and, the US and just one other thing to touch on as well is, um, you know, it's an important to really have a fully diversified portfolio because I, although uh, emerging, market, em emerging markets is uh, projected by um, in our capital market assumptions to have a premium, um, it's also projected to have a higher standard deviation. So it's important to really understand the risks that you're taking in your portfolio, um, but also to have that exposure in your portfolio. I think you'd really be missing out if you, if you uh, didn't have some emerging markets and some international equity in the portfolio. Yeah. You know, there's a lot we can cover, but we want to be um, sensitive to the audience's time, and perhaps we'll do kind of a part two of this uh, for some other areas that we think are important to touch on, whether it's fixed income. We talked about kind of an in inverted yield curve in 2019. Um, what's happening with the Federal Reserve? There's just so much to talk about mm -hmm. that, um, you know, it, it'll, it'll make sense either for your advisor to communicate things that we're thinking about as, as an organization or perhaps uh, members of the analytics team can can regroup and, and do another podcast. But um, we want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, for more information and discussion on investment topics, please visit our website at www.arnrichmessina.com. You can check out our previous podcast covering investment trends to watch for in 2020. You can read our blog or take a look at our research section. This has been Brian Shipley and Ben Larson. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. For joining us today. And thank you to all for listening. Have a great 2020. Thank you for listening to Arnerch Messina's podcast. Please see the podcast description for important copyright and disclaimer information.